reading this evening comes from uh, Romans chapter 8, and Vanessa's going to come and uh, read it for us. Romans chapter 8, which you'll find on page 1134 of the Church Bibles. It's entitled Life in the Spirit. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Now those of you who are regulars will know that there are not many um, TV series I draw my illustrations from, but uh, one of those is Doctor Who. And uh, the episode last week ended on a bit of a cliffhanger. The Doctor's lovely assistant, Amy, has been swallowed up by the earth, been taken prisoner by a civilization of ancient earthlings who live 21 kilometers below the surface of the planet. All very credible stuff. Um, We were left in a sense of despair, not knowing how the Doctor could possibly rescue her and rescue the planet from potential destruction. Well, I missed what happened last night, but I'm sure that it all turned out okay in the end, because it always does with Doctor Who, doesn't it? But last Sunday evening, at the end of Chapter 7, 
of Romans, which focused on the struggle that we all have as Christians with sin, you might have been left with a similar sense of despair. Is it going to work out okay? Surely the situation is actually quite hopeless. Why don't we just give up? After all, the life of a believer is quite a tough struggle. In fact, it might be easier just to be a non-believer. You know, then you haven't got the struggle with your conscience the whole time. Well, you'll be pleased to know that this evening we come onto a chapter which is full of good news. Last week we had this faint glimmer of reassurance that if we delighted in God's law, if we had that delight in our inner beings, then that was proof that the Spirit was at work in us. Well, this evening that, that glimmer becomes a bright floodlight as we are reminded of our freedom in Christ. And as we are introduced to the one who's given us the mind of Christ, the one who helps us in our struggle, the one who assures us that we are children of God, and that is, of course, the Holy Spirit. Much has been written about the Holy Spirit, but this chapter actually tells us um, an awful lot about him and about his work and what it means to live in the Spirit. He's mentioned here 19 times in 27 verses. Take that from me. Don't spend the rest of the sermon checking that. But the first thing we learn about him, as we look at these first few verses of chapter 8, is that the Spirit brings life and the Spirit brings freedom. After looking at chapter 7, at this conflict between law and sin, and the fact that even though we have died to sin and Christ is now our master, we still haven't fully conquered sin. And maybe Paul, as a result, felt it necessary to return to this truth. Because having said one of the purposes of the law is to to point out our sin, uh, and as it does that, as it points out our sin, it condemns us, we need to remember that for those who are in Christ, as it says here, there is now no condemnation. Let me read verse 1 and 2. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. And that statement sums up a lot of the teaching we've had in the letter so far. And in many ways, it's a statement of the the opening verse of chapter 5. Because back in chapter 5, that opens, if you turn back a page, with the words, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the question is, what does this mean, though, given the fact But as we saw last week, we still sin. Given the fact that chapter 7 ends with those words that um, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Well, the answer comes in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 8. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. The law was unable to give life because the flesh remained a slave to sin. And the flesh was therefore trapped in rebellion. But God stepped in and achieved what the law couldn't do by sending his son. 
And the three things that uh, this tells us about the work of his son, what his work achieved. First of all, he came as a sin offering. In other words, he sacrificed himself for us to atone for our sins. He died as our substitute. It had to be a man who died if the sacrifice was to be valid. And the phrase here, the, in the likeness of sinful man, doesn't mean Jesus wasn't fully, fully human. He wasn't, doesn't mean that he was just like a man. He was in the likeness of sinful man or sinful flesh because being fully God as well, he himself was without sin. He was a sinless man. And thirdly, he satisfied God's justice. God's righteous law required that sin be punished, that it be punished by death. And it was in the death of Jesus that God's justice was satisfied. And the result for us is that there is no condemnation. We are free from the guilt of sin. We're free from the penalty of sin. We've been declared innocent. We need no longer fear death, which is one of man's greatest fears, isn't it? Death. Woody Allen's latest film is called You Will Meet a Tall Dark Stranger. Apparently he chose the title because of a bit of ambiguity there. On the one hand, for a woman to meet a tall, dark stranger, apparently it can be quite exciting. The other meaning, though, he says, is the tall, dark stranger that we'll all eventually meet for him is the Grim Reaper. And Woody Allen jokes, my relationship with death remains the same. I'm strongly against it. All I can do is wait for it. And I wish someone would tell him that actually that's not all he can do because once you've been freed from the fear of death, it means you can live this life to the full, knowing it's a preparation for the real life to come, the real life of eternity. Not having a fear of death helps us in our grief when we know a loved one who has died is going to be with the Lord, is going to be safe in God's loving arms. Sadly, what this passage makes clear, though, is that this freedom from condemnation is not for everybody. Because as we move on to verse 5, we see there are two distinct groups that are described here. Have a look down. There are those who live according to the sinful nature and those who live according to the spirit. And Paul draws this sharp contrast between the two. Those who live according to the sinful nature are those who have their mind set on what their nature desires. Those who think about their own fulfilment, their own gratification, which basically means they are hostile to God. They don't submit to God's law. They can't please God. Those, on the other hand, who live in accordance with the Spirit are those who have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. Those whose minds, it says, our life and peace. Which brings us on to the next work of the Spirit, which is to renew our minds as he dwells within us. The Spirit renews our minds and later our bodies by his indwelling. And this is the work of regeneration that we talked about last week, to change our inner being from being one that is at war with God to being one that delights in God's law. As we mentioned last week, the reason that there's no struggle in the life of the unbeliever is that they, they, they have no desire to obey God. And it's firstly in the mind that this rejection of God takes place. Wicked men are described in Romans chapter 1 as those who suppress the truth. 
those, it says, whose thinking becomes futile. And yet those who claim to be wise. And that is why we have what appears to be a stark contrast here. Those who want to obey God and those who are hostile to God. There's no room for anything in between. You you can't be ambivalent to God. You're either for him or you're against him. And one of the most common objections to the Christian faith that you hear is, well, what about those those good people, you know, who, who may not be Christians, but, you know, they, they haven't really done anything wrong. Well, the first thing I would say is, where actually do they get that goodness from, those good natures from? Because if they've been created by God, it's him who has given them those natures. It's him and his common grace, that's the, the blessings he gives to all human beings, irrespective of their response to him. He gives some a heart of compassion. He gives others a heart of dedication, of of hard work. But also they may have used those natures to pursue good ends, but to what purpose? Maybe it's to satisfy their, their conscience, again a conscience that God has given them. It may be generally for the good of mankind, but what it's not, what they'll say, is to glorify God. It's not out of a gratitude to God. To be a friend of God requires a work of the Spirit in your life. To change from someone whose thoughts are preoccupied with yourself to someone whose thoughts and motivations are preoccupied with God. And if that is us, us, then hopefully we'll have acknowledged the work that the Spirit has done in our lives. Hopefully we'll see that the only difference between us and those who don't know Christ is that God has not yet poured out his mercy on them. And if we can see that it's impossible for them to be changed without the work of the Holy Spirit, then hopefully we will cry out to God that he will pour out his mercy on them, that the Holy Spirit will change them as he's changed us. Because we don't want to see them condemned, do we? Condemned in the same way that we once were. As friends of God, we've had our lives taken over. God has literally come to live within us. He's he's taken up residence in us. Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, he puts it in a different way. He he warns them against sexual immorality and he asks them, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. There's a debate in some Christian circles about when Christians actually receive the Holy Spirit? Is it something that occurs later on after having first committed your life to Christ? Well, here it's quite clear that to be a Christian, you have to have the Spirit living inside you. Without the Spirit, you can't be a Christian. He is a gift for all believers. Look at verse 9 there. It says, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Now, that's not to say that you might have a subsequent uh, richer experience of of the Spirit during your Christian life. That's not to say that you may feel particularly anointed by the Spirit to to perform a a, a work for, for God. But to be a Christian is to have the Spirit dwell within us. And notice also here that um, it refers to the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. Now, it doesn't mean we should confuse the persons of the Trinity, the the Father, Son, and Spirit. But it does mean that 
although they are distinct persons, that they, they share the same divine nature, they share the same will. They are, in that sense, inseparable. What the Father does, he does through the Son. What the Son does, he does through the Spirit, etc. To have the Spirit within you is to have God, is to have Christ dwelling in you. And the great news about having the Spirit living in you is that it will be through him that God who raised Christ to life and gave him a new body will also give life, it says here, to our mortal bodies. These bodies within which we experience the current struggle, these bodies which uh, Paul described in chapter 7 as bodies of death, Look back at verse 24 of chapter 7. Look what Paul cried out. He said, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Well, these bodies, it says here, will be replaced by new resurrection bodies that will be without sin. And at that point, as we meet our Lord and Master, there will be no more struggle. Well, we've had encouragement after encouragement in these first few verses of chapter 8. And it's not surprising that Paul then follows that in verse 12 with an exhortation to his readers. It starts with another, therefore. Therefore, in other words, in view of your freedom and life in Christ, in view of the Spirit living within you, in view of the fact that you will receive new bodies, we have an obligation. We are in debt, in other words. In case you're wondering, it's not a debt to the sinful nature. It's not a debt to live according to that. I don't owe you anything, you could say, to the sinful nature, as the singer Morrissey once said, but I don't think he was talking to his sinful nature. It's the spirit to whom we owe an awful lot. And it's a debt we can't possibly repay. It's even harder than the debt which the government is trying to, to repay. At least they have an outside chance of replaying that one day. We can never fully repay our debt to God, but we can do something, which is our third point, because the Spirit helps us put sin to death. We can put to death, or to use the technical term, we can mortify the misdeeds of the body. But we can only do that by the power of of the Spirit. We have to cooperate with the Spirit to do this. To say thank you for freeing me from my condemnation. Thank you for that glorious body that I'm going to receive. Thank you for the promise of eternal life. But now I'm just going to sit back and wait for it all to happen. That is an outrageous thought, isn't it? It would be like getting engaged and saying well that's great now, I'll see you in a year's time at the altar. Make sure you're there. I'm going off now for a year-long stag do with my mates. You need to prepare for a wedding, don't you? Not just for the day itself, you need to prepare for the married life and you prepare for eternity. And by preparing, we mortify the sin within us. We put it to death. This is not just saying to sin, you know, get away sin, get away This is a declaration of war against sin. You know, this is bringing out all the big guns. It's recognising sin as evil. And it's accepting that the only thing you can do with it is is eradicate it. You can't just take it easy and hope it will go away. Because it won't. 
you have to go out and put it to death. It's an active work. And the trouble is we're often too, too passive, aren't we? You know, we just expect that we will somehow become less sinful as we get older. That godliness somehow comes with, with age. But I know many of you older people here this evening will agree that it doesn't just happen with age, does it? And in fact, as you get older, other temptations come along. You know, physical illness, physical disability can be a huge challenge to your spiritual life. Frustration sets in. It can attack the mind. We need to be constantly on our guard. Remember those great verses we read from the Colossians in that series we did uh, last term? Let's just turn back to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. No, sorry, Colossians uh, chapter 3. Page 1184. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. And how does it go on? Well, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Our ultimate aim is to be in the image of our creator, to be like Christ. And the way in which we do that is by ridding ourselves of sin. We can only do that with the Spirit's power, but we have to make a conscious effort to cooperate with him. And that is what this book that our eye room is talking about is all about. You can change. It's subtitled, God's Transforming Power for Our Sinful Behaviour and Negative Emotions. It's God's power, but you've got to want to do something about it. The question is, are we prepared to do something about it? Because it does require effort. You know, it will be painful. To change is to admit that there is something wrong, there's something that needs changing. And whether that's physical or, or psychological or spiritual, there is no gain without pain, as the saying goes. And whether it's the pain of an operation or having to, to talk about our feelings, talk about baggage with, from the past, we, we can't put something to death until we've identified it. The Chinese cultural revolution, there were some terrible stories of how Chairman Mao's Red Guards sought out the so-called class enemies. Anyone with some sort of Western connection, he could be tortured or killed for, for reading an English book or having an interest in history or culture. They thought they were dealing with the, the enemy within. And they got it horribly wrong. But in some ways, that is what we should be doing with the sin in our lives, seeking and destroying. It's identifying the sin and it's admitting the problem. You often find it much easier, don't we, to admit our our physical problems than our emotional or spiritual problems. 
It's easier for me to say, yeah, I've got a bit of a bad back. But if it's an emotional problem, it's also easier to talk to someone, isn't it, about the fact that you feel upset about something, something's happened to you, the pain maybe that somebody's caused you. But how often do we share something about the difficult times we're going through caused by our own failings, our own internal spiritual struggle? Alcoholics Anonymous have a 12-step approach to helping alcoholics deal with their addiction to alcohol. And the first of those is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Our lives had become unmanageable. The first step to putting this sin to death is admitting the problem. How many people have confessed to you that they have a problem with anger? or greed, as it says in that passage in Colossians, or slander, or lust. I wonder if we think of these things as badly as God does. The ironic thing is often it's the most humble and godly Christians who are the hardest on themselves. It's often them who lack the assurance that um, they are saved. And to them, the smallest sins are magnified in, in their minds, which is why, as we said last week, it's important to to note that if we are struggling against sin, if we, if we experience that struggle within us, it is proof that the Spirit is at work. But the last point I want to make this evening is also important because the Spirit assures us that we are children of God. Have a look at verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. It would be easy to think that I'm, I'm failing in this struggle and therefore I'm afraid that I'm not saved. I'm afraid of God's judgment. Which is why the Spirit reassures us that we are children of God. And this is often where the devil tries to attack. It's to sow seeds of doubt, saying... Yeah, you're not a real Christian if you're still doing that. But the Spirit prompts us here to cry out to our Father. The use of that word Abba, is, um, as I'm sure many of you will know, is a term of intimacy which no Jew would, um, would ever have used to address God. And it's a crying to our Father. I don't think it's in the, the sense of a, a child wanting attention, but it's a calling upon God. It's possibly a cry of agony, similar to that of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he cried out to this father, take this cup from me. Let not my will be done, but yours. Help me, Father. We cry out to the Father in the heat of battle. We want help from the Spirit to reassure us that despite our failings, we are still children of God, that God does still love us, that he won't leave us, that he will protect us. It's a cry of trust in the situation of suffering. And we'll come on to that, I'm sure, in the next couple of weeks as we think of the future glory that is ours. How does the Spirit testify with our spirit that we are God's children? Well, it's by freeing us from the fear of death. It's by demonstrating his power at work within us. It's by making us turn to the Father for help. It's by giving us the hope of glory. All in all, he's reassuring us of the Father's love for us. If we are his children, 
then we're also his heirs. And a reminder that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is to look forward to a glorious inheritance. The best is yet to come. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen.